Good morning, Harvest. If you don't know my face, I'm Ryan Jackson. I'm the associate pastor here at Harvest Decatur. I oversee the worship and the youth ministry. And this morning, I have the privilege of filling in for our Pastor Tony. And also, I'll be concluding our series, Dare to be Different. So many of you know that over the past several weeks, Pastor Tony, Paul Roberts, and now myself have dared you to be different in this world. We have dared you to be kingdom-minded, to be loving, to be identified with Christ, to value brokenness, to be convictional, and to be humble. Today we finish this series by daring you in the area of parenting. Parenting. There's nothing like it. (laughs) Nothing in life will prepare you for the joys, the pains, the laughter, the tears, the pride, or the heartbreak like parenting. Parenting is a job full of relentless demands. It is fraught with emotional roller coasters that leave one either exhilarated or sick. And you know, parenting is a unique job. It's unlike any job or any relationship in the world, and yet it is a common bond that unites most people. You and I might have nothing in common with personality, hobbies, or careers, and yet if we are both parents, we have a common bond. I became a parent with very little know-how. On April 26th of 2008, I held my firstborn baby girl in my arms, having no idea what I was doing. And this fragile tangle of squirming legs and arms screamed out for, I didn't even know what. Let me tell you, the first time that I changed that infant's diaper and I saw the tar-like goop of a newborn, (laughs) I knew I was in trouble. Of course, I wanted to be a godly father. I knew God wanted me to raise this child in the fear and admonition of the Lord. But I confess to you, I had no idea what that looked like. And I confess to you today, almost 13 years later, I still fall utterly short of the parent that I should be. To tell you the truth, I really don't even feel worthy to preach this message. Yet I know that God's truth prevails even above my shortcomings. So I implore you, please, accept this message from a fallible man who still stumbles down this path because though I may not know what I'm doing, God does. And he's the one that I trust. I want to share one more thing on this topic before we dive into it. Please do not Tune me out if you're empty nesters, childless, or single. I believe God has a message for you. And may he help me as I strive to convey that. How do we parent? 
Where do we turn for guidance on this seemingly directionless road? Well, we do what anybody does nowadays. We turn to Google. (laughs) And a quick Google search revealed four popular philosophies of parenting today. I collected these from two websites, one called purewow.com and the other one called verywellfamily.com. Not Christian sites, just FYI. So these four philosophies are what I discovered. There's one philosophy called the authoritarian parenting philosophy. Rules are rules, no matter what. You believe in rules above all else. Discipline is non-negotiable. No matter what feelings are involved, you frequently are heard uttering things like, my way or the highway. A second philosophy is authoritative parenting. Authoritative parenting, you have expectations, but resources are king. You're all about setting expectations and providing the resources kids need to meet them. You're a believer in boundaries and consequences, but you know there's a gray area as well. The why behind something matters to you a lot. The third philosophy is permissive parenting. Rules are meant to be broken. Your kids laugh at the mention of the word rule. Consequences are something you rattle off but never enforce. You prefer to parent at a distance because if there's a real issue, you'll get a text. (laughs) Finally, the uninvolved parenting philosophy. Neglectful is an understatement. You rarely know where your kid is or who they're hanging out with. In your opinion, no questions asked are the best questions asked. Your belief, kids are completely capable of raising themselves. Now, if you're like me, you probably automatically kind of see where you tend to go in one of those philosophies, one or more of those philosophies. And I think the truth is, for most of us, we don't select which philosophy we're going to parent by. I think we naturally fall into a philosophy that we parent by. Do you understand what I'm saying? I think it's very rare for a parent to actually say, this is who I'm going to be as a parent, and this is what I'm going to do. More realistically, we fall into one of these styles, one of these philosophies for various reasons. Maybe that's the way you were parented. Maybe it fits well with your personality, or maybe fill in the blank. But I want to address something because I think there's a problem with all four of these philosophies. A problem beyond the fact that I found them on Google. Because honestly, the things that I read in those philosophies, some of them actually make sense. In fact, some of them actually sound like things we do in our house. But there's a problem. What I find wrong with these philosophies is not so much their methods as their central focus. Each one of the four philosophies that I read, they either put the parent or the child at the center of the relationship. These philosophies say things like, you will be the model child. You will be the model child because it makes me look good. You will have the life I never had. You will grow up and amount to something. You and me and everyone else in this family 
We're just going to do what we have to do to get by. You do your thing, I'll do mine, and we'll get through the day. In other words, parenting in these philosophies, it's all about me or it's all about the kid or it's all about getting through the day. The focus, the central focus is wrong. It should be on Christ. See, none of these philosophies are God-centered. Several years ago, Pastor Tony preached a sermon on parenting, and he asked this question, do you want good kids or do you want gospel kids? I think that's the right question to ask because a couple of these philosophies can produce good kids. Good kids, kids who grow up and mature and get married and get jobs and add to society. Kids who pay their taxes, have kids of their own, live decent lives. But will these philosophies produce gospel kids? Kids who are sold out to Jesus. Kids who go on to spread the gospel. Kids who shake the culture, proclaim the truth, and rattle the work of the enemy. What kind of kids do you want? What will it take for me to cultivate my kids into God-fearing, Christ-honoring, gospel-proclaiming adults? I want to submit to you this morning the answer to this question is the cross of Jesus Christ. I want to filter all of our parenting through the lens of the cross. I want to start with the cross, not with a philosophy. So what does the cross have to do with parenting? Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24 through 25, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Do you want to be a good parent? You first have to be a good disciple and that takes one thing, death. Dying to self, taking up your cross. And doing this right requires a lifelong self-sacrificial process. Honestly, I really couldn't care less about the details of how you parent. There's, there's a place for that, whether you're strict or whether you're lenient or whether you spank or whether you don't. There's, there's good questions there and that's all great, but I'm not, I'm not concerned about that this morning. What I'm really is after is, are you exemplifying the cross, the gospel to your children through a God-fearing, self-sacrificial lifestyle? Because in the end, let's face it, it doesn't matter how successful your child is. It doesn't matter what kind of education they get. It doesn't matter how many letters end up after their last name. It doesn't matter what kind of position they acquire or which team they play for, or how extensive their knowledge is, or how many stripes or stars they wear in their uniform, or if one day they sit in the Oval Office. What matters is did my child become a disciple of Jesus Christ? 
have to get this right or I may lose them for eternity. It's not so much what I do, but it's more about who I am that makes a difference to my children. So harvest, loved ones, I wanna dare you to be a cross-centered parent. I submit to you four commitments that require you to die to self for the sake of your family. Four commitments to a godly family. Number one, your first commitment to being a cross-centered parent is quite simply to love God. Commit to loving God above everything else and everyone else in your life. The text that I'm going to be dealing with this morning is Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7, and it reads as follows. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. This is known in Jewish culture as the Shema. It is a prayer that, a prayer that serves as the centerpiece of the morning and evening Jewish prayer services. But more than that, we know it's the sum total of the law and the prophets. Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven 37 through 39, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the law and the prophets. You want to raise gospel kids? Love God. Love him with all your heart, soul, and might. If you want to be the parent that God wants you to be, you have got to get your relationship with him in order first. How do I do that? How do I love God above all else? Our greatest affection should be for Jesus Christ, but can I admit to you, there are times that seems a cliff insurmountable. How can we, broken as we are, achieve such unreachable heights? I mean, after all, my affections are tied to what pleases me. My driving force is not divine, but it's fleshly. I am attracted to all this world promises, buying into the lies that satisfaction is found just beyond the next achievement, just beyond the next possession. How am I to love God above all else? John warned about this in 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. How do we love the Lord? How do I love the Lord? You know, I actually, I struggled with that question. How do I do this? How do I love somebody I don't see? How do I love somebody I don't tangibly touch? How do I love a person like that? And then I remembered the book Crazy Love by Francis Chan. He deals with this question. And I'm going to read to you this quote. It's quite lengthy, but please follow along. It'll be on the screen behind me. 
The answer lies in letting him change you. Remember his counsel to the lukewarm church in Laodicea. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. His counsel wasn't to try harder, but rather to let him in. As James wrote, come near to God and he will come near to you. Jesus Christ didn't die only to save us from hell. He also died to save us from our bondage to sin. In John 10.10, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. He wasn't talking about the future. He meant now in this lifetime. The fact is, I need God to help me love God. And if I need his help to love him, a perfect being, I definitely need his help to love others, fault-filled humans, a.k.a. my children. Something mysterious, even supernatural, must happen in order for genuine love for God to grow in our hearts. The Holy Spirit has to move in our lives. It is a remarkable cycle. Our prayers for more love results in love, which naturally causes us to pray more, which results in more love. How do we love the Lord? We have to let him in to help us love him. And can I say... I still struggle with this because I am so me-oriented. I need God to help me love God. What other relationship is that dependent? If I went to my wife and I told her, I cannot love you without your help to love you, that wouldn't end well. But that's exactly what we need from God. We need God's help to love him. We are that dependent on him. And if we're going to do this parenting thing right, beloved, if we're going to do anything in this world right, we've got to get that relationship right first. We must love God above everyone else and above everything else. So in your commitment to loving God above else, it has to start with an admission from you to God that you need him. God, I need your help for me to love you. Admit your utter dependence on your creator for his sustenance of love so that you can in return love him as you ought. Our first commitment, love God. Let me give you another commitment for the cross-centered parent. Commit to reading, studying, memorizing, and meditating on God's word. I should add that this point is a natural outflow of point one. We can't love God the way we ought to if we are not engaged in God's word, reading, studying, memorizing, and meditating. Look back at verse four. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Now, admittedly, in verse 6, the words used there are referring to the law of Moses. But when we look at 2 Timothy 3.16 and read, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, it's no stretch to conclude that Deuteronomy 6.6 includes all of God's revealed word that we have today. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Is it on your heart, Harvest Decatur? Is it on your heart? What does that even mean, on your heart? 
I hear that in movies and I hear that in songs. Follow your heart. What does it mean for God's word to be on my heart? A commentator named Eugene H. Merrill wrote on this particular verse in Deuteronomy and this is what he wrote. In the larger sense, they are, be, they are to be committed to memory as the idiom upon your hearts makes clear. In the psychology of the Old Testament, the heart is not the center of emotional life and response, but the seat of the intellectual or rational side of humankind. To be upon the heart is to be in one's constant conscious reflection. Perhaps it would be easier in our culture to say the mind. Perhaps that would help us Westerners to understand what's going on here when he says, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart to think on our minds. So is it on your mind, Harvest Decatur? Is God's word on your mind in such a way that you can recall it like that? To put it graphically, does God's word ooze from your pores like sweat? Does it stream from your eyes like tears? Does it pump from your heart like blood? To say it in a nicer, more biblical way, is God's word your delight? Is God's word your delight? Let me read you some verses from Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse 14. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. Let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Is God's word on your mind to the point where it is your delight? What if it was? What would we be able to overcome above all else if God's word was our delight? What does it even look like to delight in God's word? How do I make these words on my heart, on my mind? I think it was John Piper who said something to this effect. If you took an interest in art, you would study different artists and styles until you knew them well. The point, if you call yourself a Christian, take seriously the word of God and study it until you know it well. That, by the way, will take you a lifetime. So the question then is, how do I study God's word? Can I get super practical with you? You read it. Don't get me wrong, you can listen to sermons and podcasts and devotional books and different things like those. They're helpful tools for sure. But nothing compares 
or nothing takes the place of picking up God's word and reading it. Now we have all kinds of excuses when it comes to that. All kinds of excuses. I've heard these. I'm sure you've heard these as well. I've used these at times. Maybe you have too. Let me just share with you four excuses for not getting into God's word. Number one, I don't have the time. I mean, we hear that a lot this day in our day and age. I don't have the time. And really funny, being a youth pastor, I've heard this from teenagers. And honestly, I think, boy, you got more time than you know what to do with. Now, admittedly, with adults, it is a little bit different. The concerns, the responsibilities, the jobs, the schedules, the parenting, it all takes up time, but still, we've got to find time to be in God's word. Can I just share with you, years ago, when I worked blue-collar jobs, I worked all shifts, first, second, third, and usually, by the time I got to work, about two hours in or so, I usually had about a 15-minute break. Guess what I did? I got into God's word. Consistently, every time? No. But that was my time. And that has changed over the years as jobs have changed and schedules have changed. But my point is you've got to find the time. You've got to find the time. And some of you, you've got this down. You've got a time schedule. You're in God's word every day. Great. Keep going. Some of you, you struggle with this. Keep trying. Look for that time. Morning, evening, somewhere in between. Doesn't really matter. But make the commitment to find the time to be in God's word. Let me give you a second excuse. I don't know where to start. Okay, sure. Guess what? The Bible's a big book. It's a big book. And if you start in Genesis, a lot of times you're going to peter off in Leviticus. It's true for most of us. So I tell teenagers all the time, you know what? Start in the book of John. Just grab a chapter a day and read it. Or go to the Proverbs. Do you know, ironically, Proverbs has 31 chapters? It's almost like that was intentional. Some of you, it makes sense to start at the beginning and read all the way through. If you can do that, go for it. Pick a book and start. Just get into it. And I said at the beginning, you know, it's a big book. But really, it's not. It is, but it also isn't. Let me share with you what I mean. I looked this up, and for the ESV translation, the total word count of the Bible is 757,439 words. Now, that's a lot, yes, but let's put this into perspective. Who's read the Harry Potter series? (laughs) Did you know the entire word count for the Harry Potter series is 1,087,170 words. 757,439, 1,084,170. That's over 300,000 more words in Harry Potter than in God's word. Just throwing that out there. A third excuse, I don't have a desire to do it. Okay. But that's not an excuse. It really isn't. If you talk to most people who play sports, they don't have a desire to get up in the morning and go do drills. 
But a lot of times they grow to like it. And if we make God's word a commitment, something amazing often happens where our desire for God's word will grow. I heard somebody say one time that the process looks like this. Duty becomes discipline. Discipline becomes delight. And that's what we're gunning for. So right now, just commit. A final excuse that I've heard, I don't understand it. Fair. But it's really not an excuse either because understanding comes with study. Understanding comes with study as you read and reread and continue to read, that understanding grows. Maybe that's why God gave us the Holy Spirit. And also, ask questions. Ask questions. There's great commentaries. There's great devotionals. There's great things to help us understand God's word. So I've given you four excuses and I've taken away those four excuses. My encouragement is simple. As far as God's word is concerned, find a way, get into God's word, get to know him deeper because if you really wanna love him more, as point number one is, you can't do that until you get into God's word. It just doesn't work that way. So commit to loving God above everything else and above everyone else. Commit to reading, studying, memorizing, and meditating on God's word. Number three, Commit to glorifying God through the relationships in your family. Okay, here's where we're trying to transition because the first two points you might think, well, that didn't really have anything to do with parenting. That has to do with life as a whole. True. Now we're going to step down into the role of parenting with point three. Commit to glorifying God through the relationships in your family. Look at verse seven. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Now, if you stop and you look about, you're like, how does that scripture, how is that reflected in the point? Teach them diligently to your children. Glorify God through the relationships in your family. Well, let me ask you this. How better to glorify God in your family than to teach his truths to them? And I want to talk about the teaching part. We're going to get there in point four, but I need to address commitment to glorifying God through the relationships in my family before I get to point four. So hang on with me and let me ask you this. Are you committed to your family in a way that brings honor and glory to God? Is family something that you cherish, something that you develop, something that you are intentional and thankful for, or is family that thing that you have in between other things? Let me explain. In the book Visionary Marriage by Rob and Amy Rhino, the author writes this. From the beginning of our marriage, our home life felt chaotic to me. As a couple, we were always on the go. Home did not occupy any real space in our hearts or schedule. Home was simply the staging ground for the next activity. Do you know what I hate about that quote? It makes me feel guilty because I've been guilty of that. I have work. Many of you have work. I have meetings. Many of you have meetings. I've got to be here at this time and there at that time. And somewhere in all that, I drop by my house to make an appearance. 
I just check it off my list. Is that glorifying God through the relationships in my family? Certainly not. I cannot glorify God through the relationships in my family with a hello goodbye appearance. Let me say this. Family is not a cocktail party where you can slip in and out with just enough time to be seen. Nor is family the place where you can be physically but checked out mentally. I'm guilty of that. So hear me on this. If you want to grow up, if you want your children to grow up and call you blessed, you have got to be intentional. And this means committing time. I know we're busy. We're all busy. I know. But in order to raise gospel kids, we've got to commit time. And that means turning your brain on when you're home. It means sometimes just planning something crazy fun with your kids. It means making a point to talk to your kids about Jesus. It means apologizing when you're wrong. It means putting your phone away when you get home. And men, it means loving your wife and respecting her in front of and in the absence of your children. We have to have this in place. We have to be committed to glorifying God in our relationships because if we don't do that, then we can't get to point four. If we don't have point three in place, we can't get to point four because if we don't have these kinds of intentional God-honoring relationships, then point four is pointless. Point four. Commit to gospel-centered conversations with your children. Commit to gospel-centered conversations with your children. Let's go back to verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit down in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. I said we have to have point three in order to have point four. And beloved, point four is where it's at. It's where we reap the benefits of points one through three. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Again, let me be practical. Talk to your kids. Talk to them about the things of the Lord. I'm going to make another confession to you. I struggle with this. I have seven years of school, Bible school. I have a four-year Bible degree. I have a three-year seminary degree. And yet, when it comes to talking to my children about the things of God, I feel like a blind man in a dark alley with a one-legged guide dog. <laughs> and I'm going to guess that some of you feel that same way, talking to my children about the things of God. How do I do that? What do I even say? The Bible doesn't leave us hanging, thank the Lord. It tells us to teach them, teach them what I've commanded, okay? There's a lot of commandments. I mean, we're not just talking about the 10. We're talking about God's word, right? So are you saying that I need to hold a three-point sermon every time I'm with my kids? No, don't do that. By the way, this is one reason why we do get into God's word 
why we do make that a habit so that we can better teach it to our kids. And there's lots of helps with this. It can be as simple as just sharing a verse with your kids. There's devotional books out there. There's apps out there. There's the New City Catechism app that's free and that goes through core doctrines of the Christian faith using questions. It's very simple. New City Catechism app. You don't have it? Grab that. Do a question a day. Speaking of questions, asking questions. We're really good at asking, how's your day? How was your day? How you doing? We're really good at those. Why don't we take it a step deeper? Did you read your Bible today? Did something happen today that reminded you of Jesus? Were you able to act in a way that Jesus would have acted today? Where could those questions take the conversation? Maybe nowhere. Maybe somewhere. But at least the attempt was made, right? Ask questions and then be prepared to answer questions. You know, those annoying why questions your kids ask you? How? What? W5H, all those. You know what W5H is, right? Who, what, when, where, why, how? Okay, just making sure we're on the same page. Those questions your kids ask, those are golden. They really are. And maybe they're not asking Bible questions. Maybe they're asking about something completely and totally random. But in answering that question, you know what you're doing? You're building into the relationship. So what other questions could be coming if they feel secure in the relationship? What other questions might they ask? Those moments are golden. And if you and I would simply take advantage of those moments, what could the Holy Spirit do with that? Grab hold of that child's heart, plant gospel seeds that will one day, Lord willing, cultivate into a soul who embraces Jesus Christ. That's our goal, friends. That's our mission. Last summer, man, have any of you had mower problems? I can't even remember. I was trying to figure out the belt on a mower and I broke like four of them before I got it figured out. I was working on the mower and I was up under it trying to get this belt on and Zeke, my son, five years old, he's out there running around out of the blue, out of the blue. Daddy, how do you get to heaven? Mower can wait. You might be hearing, Ryan, you might be saying, Ryan, I hear you on this. I need to do this, but life is busy. And the thought of trying to squeeze in one more thing makes my brain explode. When am I supposed to do these things? When you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. In other words, together moments. 
together moments. I encourage you to look for the together moments when you sit in your house. When do you do that? Almost never. But we try for that. And in the Jackson family, we try. And it's a struggle. I admit it. But we try to do that, to make it a point to sit down together for a meal, at least one meal, dinner or lunch or something. And somewhere between the shrill screams and the throwing of food and the toddler's declaration that she will not eat another bite, God's word can get in there somewhere. A question or a verse or a song or a prayer, something can get in there to help direct my children toward Jesus Christ. And if you've got this picture in mind of reading the Bible to your children and raptured by the story, well, then you're thinking quite wrong. Is this not going to happen like that? It's going to be a mess. It won't look good, and you're going to walk away, and you're not going to feel good about it. You're going to feel like giving up and thinking there was nothing good that came out of that. But we have no idea what God is doing. Did you know God never requires success from us? Just faithfulness. And we leave the results to him. Let me just share with you one of my favorite times is lunch on Sundays. I, I go around and I ask the kids to share something that they learned from church. It's a mess. <laughs> but it's something. I want to do more things like that. And she'll talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. You can figure this out. What did they do in Bible times when they had to go from A to B? They walked. And if they had to go somewhere as a family, they walked together. And walking and talking isn't hard. And I know in our day, to go somewhere, you've got to get behind a wheel. But you're still traveling together. You're still together. It's another one of those together moments. And it's another opportunity for questions. It's another opportunity for a Bible verse or a prayer or listening to Christian music. How many of your kids have ever asked you, what's he singing about? Stop the song. Even if you're in that worshipful mood and you're loving it, your kid asks you, what's they singing about? Stop the song. That's a golden moment. When you lie down and when you rise, obviously, bedtime and wake time, you know, reading them a short story, at least praying with them. And I trust most of you do that, I'm sure. Pray with your kids at bedtime. Great. Keep going. How can you make those prayers more intentional? Sometimes putting your kids down at night, that's when they want to talk. That's when you want to go crash. But what if we just took a few moments and listened and answered and built into that relationship? All those things are good things. Like I've said, I'm not great at this. I'm really not. And I'm trying to do better. And I don't know how this might look in your family. Families are different. I just want to encourage you to find a time that works for you and works for your family. Just like I encourage you to find a time that works for you in God's word. Find one of the four of these things. Maybe you can't do all four of these things. That's a lot. Maybe that's overwhelming. Great. Find one of them. Be intentional. And then maybe add to that. But find something that works. And I... I'll just say up front, it's going to be a mess. 
You're going to feel like the blind walking down a dark alley with a one-legged guide dog, but that's okay. Keep praying and keep trying. And remember, the Holy Spirit's going to take that mess and, Lord willing, make something beautiful. After all, your kids are listening. Okay, I'm almost done. I asked those of you who were single, childless, or empty nesters to stay with me, and you've been very patient. Thank you. And you might feel like this message doesn't apply, but it does apply. We've already commented that points one and two, that applies to everybody across the board. And I want to be sensitive because maybe I don't know your situation. Maybe... The talk of children is painful for you because you've tried and can't. My wife and I know what that's like. Maybe your children are grown and you feel guilty for how you parented because you knew you could have done better. Maybe your children are grown and estranged And I can't even imagine that kind of pain. So I want to be sensitive when I say this. If you fit into one of those categories, hit the first two points. Love God, be in his word, and pray, pray, pray. Get other trusted friends to pray with you. And let's see what God does. You know, if you're empty nesters, your kids are grown and gone, that's great. They're still your children. Somebody once told me the job of parenting is never really done. You can still have those gospel conversations. You can still live the example that they need. And if you've got grandkids, even better. You can commit to the same four points with grandchildren. Maybe they don't live in your house, but when they do come over, when you do that contact with them, you can gospel converse with them till they leave. You might say, well, I'm single, don't have kids, don't have grandkids. That's okay. Where do you connect with children? Nieces, nephews, kids of friends, neighborhood kids, dare I mention it, harvest kids. It will be back one day. Are you exposing yourself to children in any capacity? You know, you can take the four commitments that we talked about and you can personalize them to fit within your sphere of influence and that sphere might be small. That's okay. Your exposure to children might be the three-year-old girl who lives across the street that you wave at every now and then. Wave with the love of Jesus and pray for that child and their family. I mean, if you ask God to open up opportunities, you'll be amazed at what he'll do. He wants to do that in your life. You know, we've been given an incredible example. I I told you at the top of this message to be a cross-centered parent, that this is a a lifelong self-sacrificial process, and we have that exemplified in Christ. We also have that exemplified in the greatest father who has ever been, who sacrificed himself when he sent his son on a mission, an impossible mission, to die for you and me.
He sent that son to live poor, selfless, and sinless, and then to place himself on a cross, totally denying himself to give you and I life and an example to follow. I gave you four philosophies at the top of this message where the philosophies were focused on either the parent or the child or both or nothing, really. Instead, I want to dare you, Harvest Decatur, to be a cross-centered parent. And doing what I've talked about today, that means taking up your cross and following Jesus and not pursuing yourself, not even really pursuing your children, but pursuing them through the lens of the cross. That takes commitment, it takes self-denial, and that is the cross. So Harvest Decatur, do you want to raise gospel kids? You've got to get out of yourself and commit to loving God. You've got to study his word. You've got to glorify him through the commitment to your relationship, to relationships in your family, and you've got to have gospel conversations with your kids. And then, Harvest Decatur, watch what he does with you. Watch what he does with your family. It's not going to be easy. And I don't want to say this next part, but I'm going to say it. There is no guarantee. You can do everything right, and your children still reject Christ. But if we commit to these things, if we focus on the cross, if we deny self and put Christ at the center of our relationships, then the rewards at the end of this life will be glorious beyond our wildest imagination. So if you want to be wowed by God, be a cross-centered parent. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I do want to be wowed by you. I do want to see all of my children embrace you as Savior. I do want to see all of the children in this room and all of the children represented by the parents here to embrace you as Savior. We can't do that if we don't first look to you and make you the center of our lives. So Lord, it is my prayer that you get a hold of me. It is my prayer that you would get a hold of the parents in this room, the grandparents, the singles, to commit to loving you to being in your word, to glorifying you in their relationships, to have gospel conversations. Shake us free from ourselves. And put our eyes squarely on you. For it's in the great name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.